In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. Rob Wypond is a freelance journalist and creative nonfiction writer who writes frequently at the interfaces between psychiatry, civil rights, community issues, policing, surveillance and privacy, and social change. His articles have been nominated for 17 magazine and journalism awards, and he's author of the book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. Rob Wypon, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Congratulations on an outstanding contribution. Contribution. This book is so well-written and compelling. It really does shine a light on the shadows of psychiatry and the general mental health system. And the personal accounts and the stories, I think, are, uh, are what really humanize the entire, the entire book. I'm sure many will be shocking... Um, Many will be shocked by some of these stories and how you've been able to expose kind of the dark side of the mental health system. And it really does validate my concerns and the ethos behind our podcast. This really is a human rights issue. It impacts all of us. But I'm really first to start off interested in your story and the inspiration behind this book. Yeah, really, there's kind of two main threads. I always had an interest in these areas, generally, even as a, by the time I was in my teen years, just sort of interested in reading kind of psychology, pop psychology of different kinds from that era, you know, legacy of the 60s and 70s. And we always had an interest in unusual states of consciousness and what happened to them and seeing it from a mystical perspective. So that was kind of a seed in my heart, you know. And then really, it was in the late 90s when uh, my father was going through a very difficult period, understandably just had major surgery, prostate surgery that had left him impotent and incontinent permanently at age 65, just as he was about to retire as a career college professor of computer engineering, a person with no mental health history per se. And um, yeah, so at one point he was really in distress around the cancer diagnosis and the repercussions of the surgery and certainly did start to talk and say strange things and feel suicidal and, and, and stuff like that. But overall, for me, it seemed like, well, you know, this is understandable, like, just stick with it. Maybe you can see a therapist, you know, what's going on? You know, I tried to talk to him a lot, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, this sort of escalated, I couldn't be around uh, for a while. Uh, my mother was becoming quite anxious. And she and my brother eventually decided talking with my dad that he would go voluntarily to the local hospital where they thought they should go uh, to seek help. And uh, very rapidly, the situation just basically spun out of control. It was really shocking and just you know, it was a barren, ordinary hospital setting. My dad was thrown in a room with a you know a young kid essentially, and 
there's nothing to do there. And then they're throwing these drugs at him and he's rapidly just getting worse, not better, kind of to the point where he's almost debilitated on these heavy duty drugs that he's on. And, and then they're, oh, well, that's not working. Let's try electroconvulsive therapy. And we're like, what, you know, what are you talking about? And by that point, my dad was no longer in any way complying to this. He'd been certified and he was very clear on, I do not want electroconvulsive therapy. And they did it against his will. Um, and yeah, it just became a devastating and it was humiliating for him. It was devastating. It was devastating to some degree for our whole family. It's just played out over a nine month period. He lost significant amounts of memory, a lot of which he never recovered again. Some of it he did. Um, and, and to some degree, I think that the addendum is he also didn't have the experience of recovering, even though he eventually did. And he had a good 10 more years. Like it took years and he kind of just did things on his own. And with the support of my mother got better. And, but it was just, you know, he never even in his own mind had that notion of his own resilience because he'd lost the memory of it. He lost that entire year. He had very little memory of that year. So anyway, at the end of that story, um, I really started to go, wow, like if this can happen to my dad, college professor, you know, family supportive, all the money you would need to support yourself in that situation, like really that got me on the, the journalism journey. Yeah. The book opens up with that story. And it's very familiar to me from working in the mental health system for 20 years that you see an event that happens in somebody's life and their response to the event would be expected given the circumstances. So your, your father is somebody who was very high functioning, somebody who was a, a, a professor, engineer, was somebody who um, was very active in his, in his life. And then when the quality of your life decreases based on an illness or something that you're going through, it's kind of expected to, to struggle or maybe to adapt. And there can be situations or symptoms that one would experience that we would think are part of the wide adaptation to stress process that someone might you know, have to be able to face in their life. And the way that it's interpreted or can be misinterpreted within psychiatry really stands out. Um, so your, the team that was working with your, your father was using certain language to describe what he may be going through. Can you share with us like how that was all presented to you as a family for somebody who had no history of mental illness? Yeah. And as I show through the book, all of these things they were saying, I, I then learned are very, very common things for them to say, you know, well, he had a biochemical imbalance in his brain. Uh, no, yeah, when I asked, you know, no, we didn't actually test for that. Um, we can't test for that. But, you know, that's why it's hard to get the right medication. But we will eventually. Um, you know, then with the electroshock, they, they made comparisons like, well, you know, it's like a heart defibrillator for the brain, you know, the brain is like shutting down and, and we just shock it back to life. And then, oh, it's like a, a gas tank that's gone empty and we fill it up with shocks like this, things like this that started to really kind of unnerve us because both um, have, you know, some background in kind of the sciences. And so we started researching through this period and 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 these would be the pointed questions we would ask well you know really <laughs> like and and the answers we got 
actually got kind of got worse rather than better. It was like they took it personally, like it was offensive to them that we would question their authority or their, you know, their judgment. They started treating us really poorly. They treated my mother poorly, and this was this was outrageous because like my mother was has always been the biggest support always was for my my father the biggest support anyone could possibly have just a loving caring person and, and they started to regard her as like oh you know maybe you're part of his bad mental patterns <laughs> using phrases like that so we're gonna like send him far away so he can't be around you and i think it was just they were sick of us you know they were sick of us questioning things and and caring about it right they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do so yeah, there was just that endless sort of pseudo-scientific language that they were kind of thrusting upon us that we found increasingly kind of concerning. So, Rob, I have a question. Um, I think many of us that aren't in this field have an idea of what a forks, forced treatment experience may be, but what exactly does the experience look like based on your experience and then based on your research? Or like, What is the process? How does this unfold? That's a great question because when this gets talked about in the news media, I wonder what are people picturing here? Like I think they're picturing, and it does it does happen like this occasionally. People come in and they just medical staff speak very respectfully. Okay, what's happening for you? Uh, hey, have you ever tried this drug? Would you like to try it? If it doesn't work, you know, we could look at something else. People have had those kind of experiences and I call that sort of a nominal involuntary experience where really it's, you know, you're being detained, but they're apologetic about it. Everybody's respectful and caring and you get what you want in the end, right? But within a couple of days, you find a drug you like or you know, at least makes you feel better better for the time being and you're okay with it and, and they let you go again and, and that's some people's experience but that isn't at all I don't think the dominant and unfortunately we don't have great statistics and we can talk about that but but essentially more often what I write about in the book and very often what I hear is an experience where you do put up some resistance. You kind of say, no, I've tried that drug. It didn't help me at all. I hate the adverse effects. Or you're just like, no, like I just, I want to process it my way. Like I believe I'm having a spiritual experience. I need to really think about it and explore it, things like this. And then the tentative, the, the sort of the, the aggression comes out of the system very quickly. And so people will experience uh, four point restraints, you know, tied down in gurneys, uh, forcibly stripped, security guards, threats, intimidation, um, just uh, injections in your bare bottom that are powerful antipsychotics that kind of knock you out uh, or, or just tranquilize you for days, weeks on end sometimes. Uh, people can be just pleading that they don't want this experience that they, and, and that it's terrible and painful and, and they're they're ignored, they're told that they lack insight. So it becomes very personally like humiliating on top of this, what can be very physically aggressive. And ultimately, you know, I mean, people that I spoke with, like, yeah, they, they fought back because they didn't even understand why this was happening because maybe they were in a vulnerable state of mind and they didn't quite understand what was happening. And, and suddenly, you know, four security guards are attacking them and dragging them off somewhere to, for an injection. And they're like thrashing and fighting it. So they ended up bruised and beaten as if, you know, it was a, a major police intervention. And, and ironically, part of that, a lot of people said to me, you know, obviously we know police 
these shootings occur and it's very, very tragic. But a lot of people did say to me, actually, the police were among the most respectful people I dealt with in my journey through the psychiatric system when I, the medical staff and the security guards and the nurses were far more threatening to them. So, so in, in your book, I'm imagining that's all about the, the power dynamics um, with the, uh, the individual's ability to withhold consent. And then this whole almost like back and forth, it's an us versus them, you know, and then you, you almost feel like you don't have the power that you're being bullied into, you know, agreeing with whatever they want to say. Is that correct? Yeah. And in fact, it would be great to track that because my estimates are that probably 80 to 90% of people in psychiatric hospitals are really there involuntarily. The official numbers put us somewhere between 50 to 75, depending on the hospital, the jurisdiction. But I think it's higher because so many people talk about this, that they're just told, well, sign in voluntarily or else we'll just make you involuntary. It's not that hard to do it in most cases, but then they, they give you little promise like and if you do that we're more likely to you know let you go early or something but if you make us go through the paperwork and, uh, of making you involuntary then for sure we're keeping you for x number of weeks at a bare minimum and you're gonna so a lot of people end up doing it also there's i understand there's a difference as to the accessibility of the medical records depending on whether you've been voluntary or involuntary if you're say applying to become a lawyer something like have the right of access to your medical records if you've been an involuntary patient. So there can be other motivations why people say, yeah, I don't want that on my record. I'm going involuntary. So um, Rob, your, um, your experience and your research kind of went across uh, borders. Your, uh, your family's in Canada, is that correct? Yeah. So how is the Canadian system and the U.S. system similar and how are we different? So they're remarkably similar overall. And that's the reason I, you know, the publisher went along with my argument that we should include them both because that's interesting in and of itself that the Canadian healthcare system and the American healthcare system are quite different overall. And Canada is a much more public uh, healthcare system, universal uh, health insurance for, for everybody. And America has a, a more complex system, much more privatized, private insurers are involved. And so, one of the main things in Canada is it's actually a little bit more aggressive because How insurance so? never runs out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good but, point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because um, definitely I heard of people in America recounting that, oh, yeah, the day my insurance ran out, they, they were very quick at kicking me out on that day. So, so that's one of the differences. The other big difference I saw is certainly... The, uh, in the private sphere in America, there, there's a much greater motivation for blatant fraud, fraudulent profiteering use of these powerful mental health laws that exist to, yeah, just make a profit off of people because it's not that hard to diagnose somebody with something or other and say, oh, they seem to be some sort of a danger to themselves in some way or other, or they could deteriorate into that. And so we're going to lock them up. And so definitely I found more instances of that because the, the 
profit motive was was much bigger. And the most often, it's just a doctor think, oh well, I know what's best here, and I can't be bothered to actually do the paperwork, really prove that this person really does need it. I know they need it, and that's all that really matters. And when they do audits of these systems, they find that the vast majority, like not this isn't an incidental thing, the vast majority of psychiatric incarcerations in both countries aren't even meeting the basics of the legal criteria that are laid out, even those legal criteria are so broad to begin with. Rob, there's a narrative that exists that four psychiatric hospitalizations have decreased due to elimination of state hospitals or the asylum system, along with some strict you know, rights laws that are kind of protecting the individual. But in fact, um, you know, those who, who believe the contemporary psychiatric health care system is rather safe and effective will often, you know, cite this as one of the reasons for rising rates of mental illness. What have you learned about these statistics throughout your research? Yeah, I never believed that narrative because as a community journalist, I was working on the ground and I could just see people are being incarcerated in psychiatric hospitals left, right and center here. And they're being coercively and forcibly treated in all sorts of different kinds of facilities. And so I was always questioning of it. In fact, that was the real inspiration for the book, because I knew I knew even before I looked into the data that this is widespread this this is being used as a major tool for managing communities and also and institutions in all sorts of different ways and so yeah when i looked into the data and we have to say that the data is terrible uh, governments are not tracking this very well at all and most importantly they're not tracking outcomes at all so we don't even know the people who are being forcibly treated are they getting better are they getting worse what's happening the sy system is not in any way got any evidence to show they're doing anything good for anyone they're not it's all anecdotal but the data we do have shows very clearly the numbers have been going up and up and up for decades and the and there's a direct clear reason for that, that the laws have been expanding and broadening for decades as well, right, in both in Canada and the United States. So we're far beyond the notion of what the Supreme Court in the US laid out years ago of very acute, imminent danger. That's We're far beyond that into a much more loose sort of broad notion of what danger might be. Then we're into grave disability, this notion that, well, if you can't care for yourself enough, that's somehow now a criterion. And then we're gone beyond that in many jurisdictions into a notion that, well, if you might in future mentally or physical, physically deteriorate in some way that could make you committable in future, well, now you're committable now, right? So it's like a sort of Orwellian or Kafka-esque kind of, you you can be committed now because you might be committable in future notion. And this is what's actually on the books. It's very clear. So as a result of these expansions in law, we're seeing the numbers going up a lot. And by a lot, I mean doubling and tripling over a decade, in some jurisdictions over five years. David Cohen's study at a UCLA showed that in 22 states in America, the the, it had outpaced, the psychiatric detentions had outpaced population growth by a factor of three. So going up consistently and radically wherever we get numbers and that and and a lot of places aren't even tracking them at all or only tracking small bits and a little tidbit I'll throw in here that's not in the book that I just found out. For example, San Francisco in California, as far as we knew, they had a certain number of people they were 
detaining and then a more robust investigation went in and found the number was 15 times higher wow. than all the healthcare institutions had been reporting in San Francisco. So that's an, and, and California is one of the better jurisdictions for tracking these numbers. So, so heaven knows what the real numbers are. But so we've got a 1.2 million at a bare minimum in America every year that get psychiatrically detained. I put it more at about 2.3 million, but that's just the surface because as I show in the book, there's so much, many other types of coercion going on in the community. So Rob, um, I spent 16 years in, in Los Angeles and during that time, uh, I witnessed this noticeable increase in homelessness, population and mentally ill out on the streets. Why aren't these individuals being hospitalized or forced into treatment? Well, they are, right? And a lot of them, we don't even know. Nobody, again, nobody's studying this, actually. We're just mm -hmm. having this kind of gut reaction. Oh, I'm seeing somebody behaving in a strange way in the street. They must be mentally ill. They need to be locked up, right? It's sort of like you see this coming out in these press conferences where somebody just has to say, oh, well, they were shouting on a street corner. That's enough, right, to prove it, that sort of thing. So we need to be really careful when we talk about this. I think it's unfortunate that certainly that's a demographic that does get psychiatrically detained a lot, the homeless population, and they get churned in and out of that system. And sometimes they end up in jail. And it's important to note, most times, it's not because they were assaulting someone. The vast majority of times it's like they were using drugs in a visible public space. They were somehow disturbing the peace. These are the charges that are usually leveled again. Basically, because you're homeless, we're going to throw you in jail now. So that, that cycle there among that population is certainly real but the point is it's not helping like a lot of those people have been exposed to psychiatric medications already many of them are on them already and mixing them with recreational drugs as well and and this they're not it, this whole situation is kind of out of control and the other thing i want to highlight is all of these other types of people are being incarcerated consequently those beds are often full and there's been some amazing studies of this in, in Oregon and Washington where they showed actually the healthcare inst institutions don't want to deal with that homeless population because they know they can't they can't really help. They know the person's real problem is affordable housing that they can't get, a job they can't get. And so as a result, they're they're often just, you know, giving them some drugs, drugs and spitting them back out again, or literally, and this is what these studies showed, calling the police on them to say, get them out of the waiting room. We don't care that they're seeking help. We know we can't help them and, and get them out of here. And then there's this tension between police departments and hospitals around who really is going to manage these people or deal with them in some way. And so, you know, we've got this very complex social set of issues going on there, you know, and I just, I think that's important and needs investigation in each individual case what's going on for that person to what degree might some you know a drug issue they have or a, a psychological trauma history they might have be affecting their ability to kind of stay in housing you know that that certainly happens but we don't really have a handle on how much that's really going on versus how much is just an affordable housing problem it clearly it's the affordable housing that's at the root of this because we can show clearly that we've been detaining more people and forcibly drugging more people and more people than ever are voluntarily taking psychiatric medications. Yeah, Sean, in the way that you phrase that question, it's almost like the assumption is that someone can get forced into treatment and that treatment's safe and that treatment is effective and we have positive outcomes. You know, the work of Robert Whitaker has 
really kind of shone, shone a lot of light on where we are historically. The post-drug era, in a, in a lot of senses, just continues to de- demonstrate worsening outcomes. And my overwhelming experience within the psychiatric field is that the widespread use of drugs as healthcare is more about blind obedience to some pharmaceutical narrative and the medical authorities claims versus any real strong science and and critical analysis of those outcomes. I mean, I know personally I've been utterly shocked by some of the defensiveness and unwillingness to honestly look at these treatments and the impact that they're having. Uh, there's just an, an acceptance that pharmaceuticals are somehow medicinal. They correct some underlying abnormality and outcomes are generally positive, but this is certainly not what the data is showing. This is not what research over the past 25 years is really indicating. I know I personally had to resolve that conflict. Um, In fact, I I see many more people harmed by the overall model, the idea, as well as the drug treatment, than people that are being helped. Um, And one of the things I'm always asking myself is, why are the medical professionals so quick to minimize or deny the harms or even turn a turn a blind eye? Uh, what's your experience there, Rob? Yeah, I struggle with this too because I look at what's happening and I go, "Why? How can any self-respecting, responsible, well-meaning mental health professional not look at the situation here and say, i 'I'm against forced treatment. This is just not helping.' Because how can you help somebody psychologically in an environment where they're they become increasingly afraid of the potential loss of their basic human rights in that situation and and also why aren't they the ones out there campaigning for tracking of outcomes why is it me trying to raise this in a book to go wait a minute like what you know I, there's no end of psychiatrists who will say to just tell me some anecdotal story about somebody who who thanked them supposedly for forcibly treating them and supposedly had a good outcome. And I'm like, okay, well, are you encouraging your institution to track that at a systemic level so we know what's happening to these people? No, right? Is the government? No. I mean, I was asking everybody as I try to show in this book, right, that most people don't even want to talk about it. And and that's what concerns me. And, And I do think that they know. They know that the outcomes would not look well. They don't even want this discussed publicly because as they'll tell me, oh you're going to scare people from seeking out treatment and i'm like well that's a very paternalistic attitude because you would want to know i would want to know that this could happen and i think the average citizen would like to know that this can happen if you voluntarily seek out help that you could end up losing your basic rights so easily so yeah there's just so many ways at that particular question you're raising and i think it's foundational to this. I, in a way, I, I just say, yeah, it's not for me to answer. Like mental health professionals out there that support force, tell me really why and grappling with some of the evidence that I'm showing in this book, please. Because yeah, don't just sell us on a story. You know, look at the data. Yeah, Rob, you, you shared that anecdotal comment. And that that's what I'm recalling is listening to a, a local radio broadcast. And there was an individual on who was homeless and out in the streets and mentally ill. And he was, um, went into an intervention. I don't know how the outreach happened, but he shared that his perspective was almost like he felt like he was being neglected and he wanted, and he thinks more homeless people, there needs to be an intervention to get them 
uh, off the street, get them off drugs, and then, you know, return to a normal life. And it's almost like he wanted to be an advocate for almost more interventions uh, in the homeless populations. And this was uh, noticeably Los Angeles. So my question is, you know, how does one navigate that compassion versus negligence? Well, I mean, I think it's important that if, you know, for some people, as I said, they they say, oh, I was involuntary, but then you listen to the story and you go, no, you weren't, not really, <laughs> right? Like they were maybe at some point in the process strongly coerced or whatever, but then often they had a respectful experience, right? Where they were helped and assisted in a way that they appreciated and wanted and rapidly started to enjoy. Because nobody, I can guarantee you, nobody wants to be forcibly treated forever no. by definition, right? Because that's what it means. Force is against your will. And so that's what I try to parse out and you need to do that in the data when we look at these studies there is always a group that for whatever reason because of the institution or the particular doctor or their own particular situation their own personal response to the treatment they got offered that they have an okay experience and that's great for them i just say to them don't be generally advocating this as an approach to people who've maybe tried these same drugs and gone through a similar experience as you, but ended up having a totally traumatizing and humiliating experience and, and one that was potentially even physically brutal. Mm -hmm. And so we need to kind of parse out and separate those different kinds of stories and talk very meaningfully then about, okay, so, you know, who's following into what categories here and how, how do we deal with this situation? Like, and the other thing I want to really separate out is use of force in the sense of physical intervention. So if you're a friend of mine and you're trying to kill yourself in front of me, hey, I'm probably going to try to physically stop you. I might really, you know, because I really care for you and I just don't, I don't want this happening, you know? And so I understand we have a connection and you'd probably understand that motive as well. But that's a physical intervention. Now it's very different if I then say, oh, now I'm going to like intervene in your brain and I'm going to try to like give you a drug that you actually hate. I'm going to give you a electroconvulsive shock therapy to, you know, I'm going to, I mean, we can even, there, there are all sorts of other brain interventions that are being experimented with now too. So I'm just saying, let's separate out those two things. Cause sometimes it's very easy to understand. Yeah. You know, some survivors will say to me, I was running up and down the hallway of my apartment building at three in the morning, screaming that aliens were coming to get us. And yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. It's justified that the, somebody called the police and the police stopped me from doing that. That would bug me too if someone was doing it right but they said but i do not get why i was then like stripped and forcibly injected and treated far worse than an average criminal and having far fewer rights than the average criminal so that's another way i'd like to go at that you know is how do we separate out those two different pieces of it you do talk a little bit in the book well actually quite extensively about the psychotropic drugs in question but I, the thing i like what you did is you sat there and you had these questions. In fact, you start a lot with questions and you go, and I'm going to go directly to the source. And in one instance, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but you actually went and questioned the FDA, correct? And you really just brought the question up, you know, how, how are drugs being approved if there's no, you know, definitive way that they're proof that they are working? Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that, that was like interesting to me. Yeah, there were a number of things that I, I went to the FDA for. And one of them was, of course, like, because 
they ad themselves admit, the National Institute of Mental Health admits that diagnoses are, you know, very unscientific, really, and kind of loose, and, well, they overlap in all these ways and can't really be relied upon. And so then I asked the FDA, um, how then do you prove that this diagnosis responds well to that particular drug if you know full well and everybody knows full well that these diagnoses are so really kind of ephemeral and unscientific? And they just refused and refused and refused to answer and finally just, yeah, gave me a very trite kind of, they wouldn't talk about it at all. They just issued a, a little statement in writing that said, we use a contemporary accepted diagnostic criteria for all of our work, you know, like no, no response to that at all, right? And then the other thing I talk about in the book is how if you delve into these, the, the actual approval studies, and the FDA can be credited for releasing a lot of this information publicly that a lot of health regulators don't, can, Canada's terribly uh, secretive, but you can actually get online a lot of the medical reviews that the FDA itself did of these drugs prior to approval. And you can see how even they were questioning, you know, is this drug really actually helping anybody? And that's in a context where people are eagerly getting into a drug study hoping it's going to help them and so i asked them as well like um shouldn't you be separately testing these things for when you're being forced on people because they're barely helping people scientifically it seems when when they want them let alone when they're not and i argued it's kind of like a different delivery method if you test a, an injectable versus an oral medication surely the notion of it being shoved down someone's throat against their will versus them voluntarily taken is something worth testing and they were just like oh you're crazy why would it you know the way they treated me that's how i felt like it's just like this is way off the radar of even a sensible question to ask you know and i just again i'm like really we got no science around this yeah i call that the veil of scientific legitimacy um you know they can throw that at you and because they're in a position of medical authority or they're in a government authority in that position it's just like okay i just have to accept your word for it and i think one of the reasons why this podcast is getting a lot of attention and me personally is because there's at least some legitimacy to the fact that I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm questioning these things and I'm uh, providing some research and a lot of common sense. But one of the more fascinating portions of the book was chapter four, the catch 22 of insight. I, I found myself feeling very infuriated as I was reading that chapter because it's been my experience within the system when I would even challenge it as a young man, I worked in a psychiatric hospital at age 22. It was my first job outside of undergrad. And I would question a lot of these things. And I was so, it was so dismissive. And then as I, as I would go through the educational system and I would achieve more accolades and credentials, well, then I can get in, in a lot more critical debate with a, with a doctor. But the, but the patient... Um, basically, if you refuse their diagnosis and treatment recommendations, it becomes evidence of your mental illness. Like you lack insight into exactly what you're going through. Uh, another example forced compliance into their overall narrative. Uh, your experience with the catch-22 of insight. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that 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 basically, you know, this notion and, you know, if somebody's given it a, a pseudoscientific term, anosognosia, and, and, you know, and, and really when you look at it, what you find is that here in actual daily practice, what's happening is if you 
deny that you're mentally ill or you deny that you need treatment, which is actually very understandable that even people who are really struggling will do it because they rapidly learn the diagnosis and the need for treatment are the main criteria by which you're going to be forced, right? So you realize, gee, no, I, no, I don't have a mental illness because it's the only defense you have if you want to avoid losing all of your rights. So it actually becomes very understandable that lots of people would deny it. Plus the fact that we know scientifically, as we were just discussing, the diagnoses are kind of ephemeral anyway. So, you know, it's easy to, to, to deny it. But if you do that, you've proven that you lack insight into your, your mental illness. But conversely, if you agree, and I have a, an amazing case of this where I got to look at the medical records that, that this uh, woman shared with me. And and you can see in the medical records, we're literally, even though she's actively been seeking out help, she's actually already on psychiatric medications before she ends up in the hospital situation. She's telling them, you know, how well she she understands the, her own struggles and that these are the things that help her and these are the things that don't. And all of this is, is used as yet more evidence that she needs to be there. This is her essentially confessing now to her mental illness when she's explaining to them, yeah, I did have this traumatic history as a child. This is how I'm struggling with it. I can see how it manifests in my daily life. This is how I deal with it. She's a, you know, a she was a student at the time, quite successful uh, student in many ways, just struggling at that particular point in her in her master's program, and so you know, basically everything she's saying that reveals her insight, as we call it, is used to prove that she lacks insight. And it's literally done in that way to the point where they're saying the fact that she still doesn't recognize she needs to be here, i.e. she's just saying, yeah, I don't think I need to be here because I think I'm managing all this pretty well. That's evidence that she needs to be here. And so it's painful. And then I kind of show how this is actually embodied now right in the legislation in some cases what's really going on here. And what's really going on is simply, if you disagree with the psychiatrist, they they regard that as lack of evidence, or I mean, as lack of insight into the situation. And some laws literally say that. They just say, if you're a voluntary patient and you disagree with the psychiatrist treatment recommendation, you can be instantly made into an involuntary patient. So that, that, and that's what I see in practice. And even if you look into the studies of quote unquote insight that exist, basically the questionnaires pretty much reveal that's what they're assessing too, is whether or not you agree that you have this mental illness. Yeah. I, I really like to speak to the pseudoscientific nature of the DSM because there's what we call diagnostic overlap. And this is what happens frequently. So imagine what would be the experience of somebody who is in either an abusive or neglectful traumatic environment. Well, there's going to be a distrust of authority. And what would you imagine presenting yourself if you are really struggling? There's going to be a distrust of that authority in the way that you're answering questions. There might be even some strong resistance or anger towards that person, a natural kind of defense response to stress. And then that gets interpreted as mental illness, maybe like bipolar disorder. The person is just agitated. The person is out of control. The person is unwilling to accept medical recommendations and treatment, thus justifying some forced or coercive treatment. And then you give somebody a drug with that's very very clearly creates adverse reactions in most of the population. In some, those adverse reactions are quite severe. And then those symptoms are going to be interpreted as a, a greater sign of that person's mental illness. 
And I, I do think um, when it comes to people who are either traumatized or what I'll call emotionally vulnerable or sensitive, which is a, a, a portion of the population, they tend to be artists. They tend to be people who have strong compassion and empathy. They are the ones who are most victimized within the psychiatric system because their presentations are not understood in context. They are misrepresented as a severe mental illness and their rights can be taken away from them. Yeah, and that's throughout my book. And I think many people would read my book and say, oh, well, a lot of these people should never have been forcibly treated to begin with. But the point you're making is really true too, that that the people that the system is so supposedly most supposed to be helping, it's the worst for them. People who've been through tr childhood trauma, who have these kinds of intense reactions to authority, to being forcibly stripped, they feel like they're being sexually assaulted all over again by the people who care for them. So it's often the worst for the people that actually do want and need the most help. So you said that just both the act of denying and confirming whether or not you uh, have a, a mental illness will be, make you mentally ill. Aren't we creating an environment where more people are starting to seek out help? So what percentage or who is most at risk of being forced into treatment? Is it everybody? I would seem so, say it seems so, yes, right? And that's a risk. And that's why I think we as a culture need to be talking about this much more than we currently are. Because even as we've seen over the last couple of decades, the numbers of people voluntarily participating in, in different types of mental health treatments and, and certainly medications use, psychotropic medication use is going up and up and up. So now we have 20% of the population at any given time apparently taking at least one or more psychiatric medications medications, even as that's occurring, the rates of people being treated against their will is increasing as well. And so what the heck is going on there? And I think as a culture, we need to discuss that more. But the point you're highlighting is, is crucial. And I look at it in my book too. Well, my dad is an example, right? He sought help voluntarily and that was immediately used uh, to justify as part of the justification for taking away his rights. And so I think everyone who's in this space, who's seeking out mental health help should be aware and really should discuss it with their practitioner. Okay. What are your particular policies about this? Because licensing, but licensing bodies often require some level of mandated reporting from professionals that if someone speaks about suicide in a certain way or speaks about potentially harming someone, it should be reported. And there's some leeway there, but you should be discussing this to find out so that you can then modulate or moderate what you might, might say. So there is definitely a social media trend where people are identifying and sharing their struggles with mental illness um, and then migrating over towards some phone-based apps. What can you share with our listeners about the mental health monitoring that's occurring in the digital space? So uh, we know that it's increasing dramatically. And one of the best places where we have data is the school system, because schools are kind of moving everything online right now. And they did that for, I think, other reasons. But this has allowed insurance companies and others to kind of say to them, okay, well, then since you're monitoring all of this activity that the students are doing, then you should be monitoring for threats of violence and, you know, all of these other things and mental health issues. And so we have these extensive monitoring systems that are in place that utilize rough 
roughly designed algorithms that basically anyone who uses the word shoot for anything, even if you're just talking about shooting pool that night, you get flagged, an alert goes to the principal, the principal has to intervene in some way, talk to you about it, okay, that's all, review the documents. If you're writing a, a story uh, assignment, you know, this kind of stuff. And so that's also happening uh, in on Facebook and on, on different social media. There's all these algorithms that are kind of monitoring. A lot of them have already instituted policies where, uh, you know, you hope and pray. We don't really know how these things work behind the scenes, but we're hoping that at least at some point an actual person reviews it before 911 is contacted. But people are getting uh, roped into uh, visits from police and taken to psychiatric hospitals against their will and having sometimes really traumatizing experiences of betrayal of either because it may have been somebody just it could have been a person that reported them or it could have been an algorithm that found them and often they won't even know they'll never learn the truth of that situation and as i cite the soul school system that's where we can see the numbers really really going up a lot uh, in florida they track it pretty well and you can see the numbers of children that are being taken out of public school and high school and taken to psychiatric hospitals against their will has been skyrocketing quite dramatically over the last decade and a lot of people link it directly to the those kind of uh, monitoring systems and also to people being trained. And that's the other piece of that that's going on. We're being trained to surveil each other in that way. I'm monitoring, monitoring signs and symptoms of my friends and oh, doing a caring thing by contacting 911 and getting them subjected to a wellness check. Rob, Tom Insel uh, scares the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom uh, Insull is the uh, former uh, director. He, or he was at the helm of the National Institute of, of Mental Health, which is the world's largest mental health research institution. I mean, he oversaw billions into trying to identify mental illness as a brain-related condition. But it's from reading your book, it seems like he has transitioned into this, uh, this talk or this uh, mental illness app space, which seems to me to be a front to drive more people into psychiatric drugs. Should I be scared? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, those, social, <laughs> those, those apps, right? And you're right, like uh, Thomas Insull has been working in that space. He moved from the National Institute of Mental Health in, to, to Google and then to uh, a private company that's uh, developing these kind of apps that, and, and all of them have a policy of intervening. Like you won't find one that doesn't as far as I've ever looked at. So people need to know that when they're kind of talking back to their, their cell phone, whatever about how they're feeling that day or, or and a lot of these apps will can do other things as well. They'll, they'll be monitoring your voice tone, uh, other things you're doing, the searches you're using and giving you little alerts about that. Uh, but these things also have uh, policies in place for when they're going to forcibly intervene against your will. And police will be contacted with or without your knowledge. And often it's without your knowledge. So people ne need to be concerned about the use of these apps. And they're being extensively uh, promoted now, of course, like, oh, this is a great way for everybody to get sort of mental health treatment in there pockets but there's a there's a real risk there and, and again it's it's not talked about a lot because I think if people know most people would be concerned and probably would not want to expose themselves to that risk and so it's often hidden that this is going on and 
it's really hard to find any kind of numbers. None of these people release them. You'll just occasionally get that anecdote from, oh, it happened to me. You know, I was tweeting something on, and next thing I knew, the police showed up. Or, yeah, I was using my mental health app, and next thing I knew. And then, you know, that's all we really know because we're not getting any numbers on this. It's frightening. Um, and, and think about your phone and location-based uh, sharing. And you can go into your, your settings and see everything that's tracking you. And most of the time, I don't check that box. And then I'm like, wait a minute, how is this happening? Mm -hmm. Like there's so much in there. It is really, it's eye-opening. Uh, you shared a lot of those stories in your book and it is scary because people think they're communicating in a safe space and it's not. Yeah, that's it exactly. There, and and unfortunately, there's such a lack of confidentiality in this entire space. As, as I talk about, uh, privacy laws really don't apply in the same way. As soon as you've been kind of labeled as someone who might potentially be in some way a risk to yourself or others, all bets are off in terms of how that information can be shared because ostensibly they're helping you and they're helping the people around you, you know, by, by revealing this kind of information. So really the, the, the confidentiality, confidentiality of health information just does not apply. And as other people have shown, particularly in the space of mental health apps that we're talking about right now, a lot of them are not actually like officially a health institution per se, right? It's a private company that's designed an app. So health laws don't even apply to them at all, period. And so we've seen some evidence coming out, some devastating report just recently uh, that came out showing that all that information is being shared all over the place, right? And combined with all sorts of other information that Meta, the, the owner of Facebook, has been compiling in all these different ways and these the secret hidden uh, digital uh, image images that are hidden within emails and other, uh, and within websites are relaying information about your activities across the internet to this centralized location and the combined with any mental health knowledge they have. And it's all completely operating outside of, of health privacy laws. Yeah, I believe that uh, that study came from the uh, SanfordDuke.edu. Uh, it was about the uh, all of our data through these apps being put on sale through brokerage. So a lot of your names are removed, but you're basically you're identified within there. And there's so much information that you can be targeted, mostly through your IP address. Yeah. And I'm what, what I'm concerned about is the continued diagnostic expansion into normal, which is the goal. And this is a pharmaceutical industry tactic that if you can expand the amount of people who can identify with the disease, then you can increase your base for drug sales. And so all these apps are bringing focus and attention to people to think about their own human experience in a way that's very much distorted because you're not going to get through life without emotional pain. You're not going to get through life without loss or fear uh, or the challenges of being human and living. So if we can dehumanize and just like ex expect that, you know, going through life is to feel good all the time and send that false message that when anyone's struggling, they're now vulnerable to this idea that they're taking care of their mental health by turning to the intervention. And that intervention is not diet, it's not exercise, it's not community support, emotional support, or improving skills in, in various ways, or taking care of your sleep, or taking some time away. Whatever is you know natural for a recovery process that existed throughout the course of human history, it's now you have a brain-based disease. They're going to take very complex human reactions, and they're going to simplify it. And they're going to simplify it as if we have a drug 
to be able to treat that and you'll be back to yourself in, in no time, right? It's, it, it's mass marketing pseudoscientific nonsense that continues to get discussed throughout our culture. I mean, I think that for, I think for the most part, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has kind of stepped back from mass promoting this because it's promoted already in popular culture. I think that it, the damage has been done when you have people talking about it and school teachers talking about it and lessons around it and uh, social media around it and primary care physicians repeating the messages over and over again, the damage has already been done. They don't have to dump any more money into it. Yeah, one of the things I talk about is how mental health has come to mean all things to all people, right? What the heck does it mean? It means mental illness and it means everything in between mental health and mental illness. And I think that itself is already a problem, right? That we, it was it was used as a metaphor originally, this notion that somehow the brain, the mind in that sense could have a, a healthy versus unhealthy frame right? It's almost like a, a version of a moral thing. Oh, you have a good mind or a bad mind. What, what does that mean? The devil is in the details. And I think when I was a kid, even then, like it, it was rare. Certainly there was some awareness of, of mental health as an issue, mental illness as a, as a concept. But by and large, when people were struggling, kids were struggling in high school, it was like, well, maybe you should take up football, you know, maybe you should join the chess. Like, what are your interests? What are your passions? Like, how can we plug you in there to, you know, more friendships, you know, or, or whatever it might be there, there. There wasn't this immediate sort of pathologization that somehow your issue is in your mind and you need a, a health professional of some kind uh, to, to get at that with you. And, and that's a big change I've also seen in my professional career, like 20 years ago when I was right researching this, I could easily call up virtually any non-drug practitioner, a psychologist, a therapist, psychotherapist, and they would readily critique this whole system. Nowadays, not so easy. Like a lot of non-drug professionals have recognized that overall the industry sort of grows if they're in compliance with the psychiatric industry and the pharmaceutical industry. And so now you really see this in the training programs for children and youth and for teachers and schools is it's, it's just a, a slippery slope that happens over the course of a several pages of the training manual. It's basically, oh yeah, if you're struggling, talk to your friends, take up sports. That, that's page one and two. Page three is if it lasts for more than a week or two, you could have a brain disorder. Yeah. You better see a professional. Here, uh, serotonin needs balancing with an antidepressant. Like they start throwing in bogus science and you know really manipulative phrasing and and yeah. So you see this in the same the same continuum right now. And I think that's one of the reasons it's gotten so out of hand. Like I think really non-drug practitioners need to kind of at this point in time stake out which way they're going to go. On this because right now they're definitely feeding the the fuel of this particular fire it, it would be comical if it wasn't so serious you know you, you almost it's laughable when we talk about it like if you feel a certain way for two weeks then you, now you're disordered now you're mentally ill and now you require intervention but we've bought into it it's it's worse since the pandemic so uh, what i'm concerned of and protective of is young people they're the most vulnerable, and we're seeing a dramatic rise in psychiatric hospitalizations, forced hospitalizations over the course of the pandemic. Large percentage of them have been adolescent females. They're generally relational and engaging, uh, but they're also susceptible to some of the, the harms created by social media. And we are seeing 
influencers who are talking about uh, mental illness as if it's a badge of honor um, and also an opportunity to be able to join an oppressed group and to even think about things in terms of social benefits and or the, the disability culture that's being you know, developed in the United States. And you go and you, you discuss your, your struggles, even if you're not exposed to that, and you say things to the wrong person, which tends to be a medical professional, you just even mention the fact that you thought about uh, suicide. It doesn't even matter if it's about intent or desire, just the idea that it crossed your mind and you thought about life and death in this way. That is enough to push somebody into the system. And how are we going to now protect young people from going down this dangerous path where in your book, you do a really good job of highlighting how easy, you know, you can enter into that system when you're in a vulnerable period in your life. We need to start talking about solutions and how to protect young people from going down this dangerous path. Thoughts? Yeah, well, one of them is is we need to talk about involuntary commitment and forced treatment and psychiatric detentions more because I think that's key to this. Because as soon as we get into the debate around, well, if somebody's saying, hey, I took this drug and it helped me, it, it's much more complex to sort of parse out then, okay, what's happening there? Are, are you fully aware of the actual possible side effects of these drugs? To what degree is the psychoactive property of this drug affected your state of mind about that? So there's a coercion going on there that I agree is absolutely really concerning. And as a culture, we need to get a better handle on. But by I'm trying to simplify it at the beginning point because we're, we're way beyond that now, right? We got, we got 20, as you said, kids today embrace these notions and get upset if you try to take away the diagnosis from them and say it's not scientific or whatever because of all these other associations with it. So we're way past uh, the point now, uh, I think, where we can you know, easily turn that that tide back. So I'm trying to simplify the discussion, at least at the beginning, to go, well, at the very least, you should be making your own choices about that. You should have freedom to really be educated and, and hopefully get good inform, informed consent to these processes, right? And, and let's talk about the risks, though, of going down this path, because there are risks. Even to simply having a diagnosis on your record, I think a lot of children today don't know how could they know about what their possible repercussions could be to having a mental health diagnosis on your record but we're already seeing well you guess what you can't cross the canada u.s border sometime if you've ever had this kind of diagnostic intervention that involved police in any way or you know there's other ways in which these kind of records get permeating through social social systems or passed from one school to the other it follows you around people have a prejudicial attitude towards you so i think we need to talk about the negative and you know that I guess that would be the beginning point of for me the part of the solution is to be much more honest forthright and let's get more data about how bad this can really be for some people some of the time and then use that as a point of going okay how do we prevent that and I think that opens up a lot of other dialogues but I'm interested to hear your perspectives on this too right because I don't really deal a lot with solutions in my book as you know uh, I kind of look at some 
there are these guidances that become from the World Health Organization as to how to reduce coercion in mental health systems, looking at, at innovative models around the world. And some of those are great. And some of them are happening in America at a small levels. And all that is, is great. You know, I'm more concerned about this as a, almost like a policing issue that's happening in our communities and kind of turning that back. I totally agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, I do think first and foremost, um, informed consent is a legal and ethical imperative. And so if people are not provided accurate information, they're unable to make informed decisions around their own health care. And if the physicians aren't accurately informed and they are making medical decisions based off protocols, like one of the one of the things that you know I found out through my research and talking to physicians, 80% of psychiatric drugs are now being prescribed in primary care settings. And the American Academy of Pediatrics, for example, is like recommending for youth who are presenting with anxiety or depressed mood uh, an SSRI as like a frontline treatment or option. And so doctors now feel like they have to follow those protocols as if that's best available evidence. And these drugs have not been proven to be safe and effective, especially for developing brains. And then it increases the likelihood of self uh, harm against yourself or others, both suicide and violence. And those are very clear statistics. They're, they were um, clear in the clinical trials and they're part of the drug companies, you know, even website and, and post-clinical trial uh, introduction statements. I mean, it's it's clearly stated. This these drugs can increase harm to yourself or, or somebody else. They're dangerous, mind and mood altering substances. But they're, they're, those risks are just so diminished and minimized, as if it's if it's such a rare event. And the fact that you have a, a disease and this drug can help you, and we'll just monitor you because these adverse side effects are, are so rare. But they're not rare. They're actually quite frequent, and the, whether it's just a, you know, a loss of sleep or an agitation, they really can impair quality of life. So that information really matters. I think that in itself would lead to a, a, a real dramatic decrease in the use of harmful psychiatric drugs as, as treatment. Uh, and then we have to look at the outcomes of hospitalizations. Hospitalizations and partial hospitalizations are a Negative health intervention I mean they likely do more harm than good, and there are alternatives to forcing somebody into such a sterile environment that can often be traumatic. We have to be able to increase our community supports. I do think that is absolutely important, and we have to change the narrative. You know, what is sound mental health has to be part of the conversation and part of education, but not in the way that it's being communicated by the special interests, not the way it's being driven down our throats by the medical authority and the pharmaceutical industry. To, to think about things as a simple brain-based condition, kind of like require, like insulin for diabetes are flat-out lies and, and they're harmful. And the negative health effects of all these drugs are quite significant. We do have to get back to, in our society, being able to talk about and normalizing the challenges that life brings and support coping, but also improve the health and well-being of our culture. You know, you're going to be, you're on a phone all day and you're stuck in there and you're, and, and you're sedentary and you're not as active and you're not connected to nature and we're not interacting with each other socially and we're not developing purpose and meaning in our lives. 
Well, the result of that is going to be despair. And, you know, you're on that television or you're, the constant messages that are being bombarded to us provoke fear. You know, your, your life is going to be despair and depression and anxiety and sleep-related problems. There are cultural issues that we're going to have to tackle. So this, obviously this runs deep, so then the solutions have to be able to meet the complexity of the problem. I'm against the oversimplification of complex ideas, and I think there's many different paths to solving this problem. I yeah. think, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. No, go, go ahead. Kyle. I just, being in education, um, I agree with everything you just said. Here's my, here, but step number one has to be the ability to have these conversations without actually being fearful of any kind of, you know, fight back because there's so many people in the educational system that believe in, in the opposite of what you just said. Do you know what happens when I have this conversation on private public forums? I mean, it, it's sometimes it's it's presented out there as if I'm stigmatizing help for mm-hmm. people who are mental mentally ill, right? Like we don't need more stigmatization. Like this is you stigmatizing. I'll tell you what. There's uh, there's not enough stigmatizing that exists. Everybody is being turned towards mental health treatment. A lot of it is pseudoscientific crap, and and we're not seeing any positive outcomes about it. What we need more is critical analysis and not just buying the narrative that's sold to us. Yeah, and, and that's, that's what I really think needs to happen, though, is people just need to start talking. Just like you said, Rob, we need to just be able to talk about this, and it's not threatening anyone. It's real. It's there. There's facts. We, we know all of this. Let's start there, and then maybe we can you know, get a positive change in the mental health because right now... It just keeps going. It's, it's, it's like you, you don't see the end. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That's why I loved your book because I was like, there, there are solutions here. You know, there's definitely things that we could be discussing and we should be discussing. And, so, and you know what, Kelly, like the other, the other um, response that I'll get is, well, Dr. McPhillan, you, you don't work with the, the severe and chronically mentally ill so you don't know how we're helping them. Even though in my career, I have worked with what they designate to be the severe and chronically mentally ill. So even if that's the case, even if there are people who are really having a, a hard time connecting to reality, are in agitated, psychotic, or even manic states, the idea that these, the current treatment is effective is a false narrative. Um, it doesn't mean that there might not be some medical intervention to stabilize somebody, but to really talk about recovery, that person needs support and needs time and respite and good care, right? And all the things that are leading to that person feeling that way need to be addressed. Uh, if we're going to use our tax dollars in some effective way, um, I, I, I would tend to think that it would be for the good of all of us in society if we can create some environments where people could actually heal and get treatment uh, in an environment that's respectful and good care. Rob, go ahead. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate both in relevant to both of what you both said was that, you know, we don't have any science that says forced treatment helps people, any, any demographic, any subgroup within that. The science is really poor in this show. There's very few studies internationally, really, but they don't show any robust evidence that forced treatment helps. As, as even very pro-force psychiatrists and researchers would say is, gee, this seems to be based on uh, tradition more than evidence and things like that. These aren't even critics that are finding this. So, so we need to really highlight that, particularly around forced 
source. There's nothing to, to support this as a, as scientifically. And the other thing I want to talk about is that uh, deprofessionalization of this whole space, I think would be great. Yeah, let's back up and say, hey, what are you really feeling? Let's not get into calling these diseases, you know, so quickly and all that kind of stuff. Back up and, and retrain ourselves to just be helpful and supportive to each other. And, and what does that really mean in our daily lives and our daily interactions with each other? And, and, and there's a real model of that within community too, right? That goes back to the 60s and the people who did community development in, in really difficult inner city communities uh, around America that sort of founded this movement. They were influenced by thinkers like Thomas Zaz and Ivan Illich who were already critiquing the medic over-medicalization of sort of human distress. And they said, yeah, we need to deprofessionalize, not excessively professionalize this environment, rather back up to go, how can we help each other? What does that really mean? And, and it can be psychological, it can be practical, it can just be friendship and, and problem solve together. Like what's driving you to this crisis right now? Okay, gee, is there something we can do that would really help, that would make a change and at least kind of get you over that little hump for now? And then we can work on these other things that are, are a little more long-term, you know, just, just approaches like that. Because right now, like literally a social worker in a school is often told, if the child mentions suicide, you check a box and you have to direct them to the psychiatric professional now. Whereas 20 years ago, social workers were allowed to do that. Right? We're just ex over, we're professionalizing more and more and more uh, with a faux expertise, you know, driving it all. So, yeah, I agree with both of you wholeheartedly. So, Rob, you started off <clears throat> talking about your father, and uh, the takeaway I had from that was what he lost during that experience was that opportunity to build resilience. And what you're talking about right now is just, you know, more of a, a general approach where you take that step back, you look at a stressful moment or an anxiety-ridden moment as that opportunity to build resilience, and there's really no environment that allows that to foster. Is that correct? That there's no environment that allows that to there's no Yeah, there's no place for people to go where they can have that type of dialogue. They can talk about their stresses. They can talk about their anxieties and not get kind of migrated. Right. Th those, those spaces are shrinking, yes. So one of the things I really encourage people is create that space because yes they're rapidly diminishing in our culture and our society all over the place so yeah like you need to create it you need to gather people around you that you really trust and I'll give them the space to talk really honestly when they're in in a deep crisis and say hey this is what i'm going through and similarly ask them for that space so that you aren't calling 911 on each other and thinking that's a good approach to this yeah that's going to solve it no be there for your friend, you know, to whatever degree you can and bring others to bear in that who, who share that and his family, family should be doing, we all need to be doing this. And I understand it can get very difficult at times. Sometimes people really are struggling in a way that can, you know, create stress on a family that doesn't know how and they're to deal with it and they're afraid of it maybe and all that. And I'd say that that's one of the things to work on is don't be afraid of this. You know, it's true that as a culture overall, we may lose some people on the way, but, you know, when we start adding up the numbers of how many people's lives are being destroyed by forced treatment or in lack of informed consent, you know, in aggregate, we may end up doing better. And there's a lot of good arguments to suggest we will end up doing better overall. But you do have to be ready, I think, to live with a bit of risk in your own life and in the lives of those around you to say, yeah, you know what, like... 
that person's talking about suicide and uh, you know they might do it i hope they don't and i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i can to make sure they feel cared for and supported and 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 you know and all of that but at the same time yeah i think we have to also get back to accepting that life has risk to it that is such a great point and we've kept you a long time but i want to follow up on that point so we we live in a litigious society mm-hmm. and the mental health professionals and the way that they're being trained, they're being trained in fear. So when someone starts talking about ending their own life, they're automatically beginning to think about their risk, their liability. And so it changes the way that they interact with that person. No longer is that a human being in pain where your presence can actually help motivate and support someone to want to live they now become a risk to you. And there are checklists that are developed and you have to go through your checklist in order to prove that you protect, that you took all the necessary steps as a professional. And it's often leading to this forced hospitalization as a protective measure, not because it's in the best interest of the patient, because it's in the best interest of your own fear. Yeah, and a great example of how ridiculous this gets, right? And I think I do, I blame both parties. I say I blame professionals for not being more honest that we, you know what, we don't know how to stop a suicide. We have, there's no scientific evidence that we know how to stop one, right? Like it's just, they should be more honest about that right up front. Sorry, like we do not accept this responsibility because we can't. But similarly, I got to say to the people, families, patients, you know, like don't expect that from your your mental health professional either because an incredible ironic story that just came out. So we have this hospital in Arkansas that's clearly been holding people fraudulently. They've been exposed such that the, the local sheriffs are dragging patients out of the hospital there because it's been exposed that they're fraudulently detaining patients. And yet, at the end of the article, they mentioned that, oh, and then one patient was let go early and now they're being, the hospital is being sued because that person committed, you know, killed themselves afterwards. And, and so you have this tension going on where we were expecting too much of mental health professionals, right? And consequently, they do detain people. And then, yeah, okay, we're upset when they detain people seemingly forever because really, even if you're doing it fraudulently, hey, that's the safest thing to do. It's like stopping crime. If I jail everybody in the United States, there'll never be another crime in America, right? That's a logic that some people start moving towards. And that's the logic we're using, moving towards in this system right now. And it's ridiculous, right? So we really have to say, wait, there's risk in this system. These Some people really are struggling. Some professionals really are trying to do their best and will still lose patients in different ways or just can't help because we don't have evidence that we can solve these problems. And I believe, and I argue in the book, that that's why forced treatment is expanding. It's expanding because we aren't solving these problems. And so there's some logic out there. Well, maybe if we just do more of it and do it more aggressively and start earlier in children's lives and don't let anyone escape. We expand it into the community so no one can ever escape forced treatment. Maybe that'll work, but there's no evidence that will work. And we have a lot of evidence that it's going to be backfiring and we're already seeing that. Great point. Rob. Where can people find you uh, if they're interested in your work, more about you? So the book, 
you know, your consent is not required. The rise in psychiatric detentions, forced treatment, and abusive guardianships. It's available anywhere books are sold. My website, robwipon.com, there's a page there that gives you more information about the about the book and, and testimonies about it and so forth. And I'm updating regularly with uh, what else is happening around the book. And then I'm on Twitter and Facebook fairly actively as well. So, and just under my name, Rob Wipond, so they can find me through any of those those pathways. Rob, keep up the good work. Thank you for a radically genuine conversation. Thank you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.